I add my own words of welcome to those already given. It's a joy to see you all gathered here on the Sabbath evening in the Lord's house, and uh, we are delighted that you are present to hear the Word of God. I must say all the sticks are chopped for the rest of the winter. Uh, in fact, I'm banned from using an axe anymore. Uh, some people think it might annoy my heart, and so uh, I don't, well, except now and then when I want to top the bag up, but uh, generally speaking, no more chopping. But it's good to see you all here. We're turning in the Word of God tonight to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read, sorry, Titus chapter 2, we're going to read this chapter together. Titus is a marvelous little book. It's one of the pastoral epistles written to a minister like First and Second Timothy, and this book falls into very clear sections. There are three chapters in our English version. Of course, in the original text, there were no chapters and there were no verses, just one continuous prose the whole way through. And yet it's divided up carefully and accurately because the first chapter deals with church life, the second chapter deals with home life, and the third chapter deals with public life. And you will see that as you read carefully through the verses. So we're turning to chapter 2, and let's read the Word of God. And may the Lord bless the reading of the Word to our hearts. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh, or suits holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, that means not being dishonest, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort, and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. Amen. And God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Now we'll bow in prayer, and again we'll lift up our souls to the Lord, looking to Him for help and for His blessing and power to be upon us tonight. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we continue in Thy presence and as we lift up our souls to Thee, we do not do so in some mere perfunctory manner, but Lord, we lift up our souls to Thee because we need Thee. We feel our own unworthiness, but also our own frailty and powerlessness. Lord, I do pray that Thou wilt breathe in me and grant me the infilling of the Holy Spirit to bring the Word of God this evening Bless this congregation in this building and those who join with us online. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt give help from heaven to exalt Thy Son, 
to preach Christ in all His fullness unto those who need Him. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will take the Word, that He will bring it home, that He will apply it with power. Thou dost know every heart, every individual, every soul. And may Thy Spirit move this evening, solemnize the gathering in its totality. We pray that there will be a sense of God in a most remarkable way, that there will be conviction of sin, there will be the troubling of souls, the disturbing of the conscience. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt also bring truth home to the heart in a manner that will grip and arrest the mind and the entire being. May there be a drawing of the lost to Calvary. Hear us, O God, we pray, and grant help now, we ask in Jesus' name, and for His glory and for His everlasting praise. Amen and amen. Now, modern technology enables us to make personal contact very, very quickly, whether by emailing or texting or Skyping or Zooming or whatever other platforms you might use. When the message is written and put together and sent, it is gone in an instant, and usually it is received very, very quickly by the recipient. And certainly the gospel minister can make use of those facilities. It is a blessing to be able to keep in touch with brethren across the world and seek to encourage them and also converse with them as we seek to do the work of God in our respective spheres. In Paul's day, it was writing a letter was the only way in which he could communicate with his colleagues. And that's exactly the nature of this little epistle. It is a letter, a letter written by Paul to encourage his colleague Titus. Together, these two men had gone to the Mediterranean island of Crete to preach the gospel and to evangelize the lost. The Lord blessed their ministries powerfully so that the entire island was reached. In chapter 1, verse number 5, Paul refers to elders being ordained in every city, indicating that there were sinners saved and there were churches established in every city and throughout the length of that island, that Mediterranean island. In his personal ministry, after his work was done in the, on the island of Crete, Paul moved on, well, to wherever it may have been. And he left Titus to uh, strengthen the work of God, to strengthen the churches on that island of Crete. However, the apostle Paul could not forget and did not forget his colleague, the servant of Christ, nor did he forget the Lord's work on that island, as this epistle so clearly indicates. And therefore, he wrote a letter in order to help Titus with his ministry, to give him instruction and guidance by the inspiration of the Spirit of God as he wrote this letter, so that Titus would know what needed to be done, how he would go about it, how he would seek to establish the work furthermore and see it go forward and move on in its spiritual progress. And so he writes to Titus, and he writes to him, that is to Titus, as his own son in the faith, as he puts it, which simply means that Titus had been converted through the ministry of the apostle Paul at some time in the past. He also writes in chapter 3, verse number 12, of his, that is Paul's plan, to spend the winter in a place called Nicopolis, and he urges Titus to visit him there if possible. So, all those little details make it clear that he hasn't forgotten God's servant. He's still thinking about Titus. He's still remembering the Lord's work on that island. He wants the man of God to be blessed and to be helped in every possible way. So, this book presents itself as a personal letter from Paul to a dear friend and a co-worker in gospel ministry. Gospel or Bible scholars believe, estimate, that this letter was written around 62 to 64 A.D., between Paul's first imprisonment 
in Rome and his final imprisonment and martyrdom in that city which it is believed took place somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. Therefore, while we have no idea of the exact date or time of the writing of this letter or how long it actually took for it to reach Titus, yet it finally did reach him and arrived with him. And as a Spirit-inspired epistle, it has been preserved for Christ's church right down through until this present moment. Now, among other issues that are contained in the book of Titus, this book is a textbook of the doctrines of the gospel. It begins with a statement in the first few verses. It begins with a statement of God's eternal purpose to save sinners and bring them to know the Lord Jesus. It presents the fundamental fact of the doctrine of human depravity and the doctrine of human inability. It emphasizes the truth of salvation by grace alone. It stresses the necessity of regeneration by the sovereign power of God the Holy Spirit. It underlines the indispensable redemptive work of Christ for the salvation of sinners. It thrills the soul with the message of the Lord's final coming and glory to gather His people home and have them presented without fault as they enter into their eternal rest. In keeping with these clear gospel themes, this book six times uses a special name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times it is rendered God our Savior. Once it is given this way, the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Another time it is translated Jesus Christ our Savior. And in one further instance, it is this, the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, clearly those titles, they're all very much the same, but those titles focus our minds on the fact, as we were singing tonight in every one of those hymns, that Christ alone is the Savior of sinners. My text tonight is verse 14 of this second chapter. You will find that the fourth use of this title lies in the preface to verse 14, because at the end of verse 13, you have those words I just mentioned, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then it says immediately, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto Himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works." And so what we find is that there's a focusing in here on the work that Jesus Christ has done as the Savior of men. That's the vital matter that we need to notice, and we will notice tonight by the help of the Lord in this message. What Christ has done, because He is the Savior, what He has done and the benefits of that work all of that means that He alone is the Savior of sinners. I want to develop that thought tonight. I want to take that line of truth and look at it with you as we come to consider what these words are in verse number 14. So, you see the setting. You get the clear message of what the gospel truths are in terms of how they revolve around that blessed name, Savior. And we're going to see what Paul has to say here in verse number 14 as we come to look at this particular verse. There are three things in the verse I want you to notice. Number one, the offering. The offering. The opening words of verse 14 are these. Who gave Himself for us. Who gave Himself for us. Now, the word gave is used a number of times in the New Testament with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ giving 
his life in order to save people from their sins. And those verses are very, very familiar, and yet they're very important because they underline this matter that in being our Savior, He could only be such as a result of the offering that He made. And it's in view here, who gave Himself for us. As I say, there are many verses like this. We have Matthew 20, 28, where the Lord says that He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Or Galatians 1 and verse number 4, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world. I could keep on going, but it's not necessary. Verse after verse after verse, where you have this verb, to give. And it signifies the concept of the offering. And so the focus in those words at the start of verse 14 is on the offering of Himself by Jesus Christ at Calvary to save men from their sins. You think of what Paul says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5 verse 2, where he writes those wonderful words about Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gave Himself. Again, you have it there. And so, it is found everywhere. Hebrews 10, verse 12, This man offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. You cannot deal with the word give, or whatever form it takes, give or has has given or gave. You can't deal with that word without seeing the issue of the offering, the sacrifice, as we will see tonight that the Lord made to save people from their sins. You have the grace of that offering. It says here, who gave Himself. And the words ring with the truth of grace, the grace of God in the whole matter of Christ being our Savior, in the whole matter of the offering that He made when He presented Himself as the sacrifice unto a holy God. And so there is the matter of the grace of the offering. Now, a little farther back up here where I was reading in verse number 11. Notice the wonderful words there that you have in that verse toward the end of the verse. It says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And then it goes on to say in verse, that was verse 10. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. And let me say to you, in verse number 12, you have there, or verse number 11, you have there the fact that the term, the grace of God is used as a name for Christ. The grace of God hath appeared. That's the appearance of the Lord. That's the birth of the Lord. That's the coming of the Savior into the world for the first time. And we're told here that the grace of God hath appeared. And we marvel at that. We think of that little child in the manger. We think of that young boy growing up in Nazareth. We see him as he makes his way on through until the day he begins his ministry. And at whom are we looking? We are looking at the one who is the very embodiment of the grace of God. Because when you come to deal with this offering, there's the grace of the offering, and Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that grace. He came to rescue sinners. He came to deliver them from the greatest possible calamity, namely the curse of God upon sin. Christ, the grace of God, came also to bring the greatest possible blessing, everlasting life, to sinners who deserve the very opposite of that, who deserve the greatest possible punishment, everlasting hell. Is that not grace that Christ would come, that He would appear, that He would be the grace of God in His own person and in His own work and do all this in order to finally go to the cross and save men from sins by the offering up of that blessed person of His at Calvary, that body of His, that soul of His at Calvary for men's sins. Let me show you from those words. Just think about them. Does it not teach you and me tonight? That since salvation is brought to sinners, 
then how helpless they actually are. It has to be brought to them. It must be brought to them. Because they are helpless in themselves to do anything about the bondage that they're in to Satan, about the slavery that they're in because of sin. They can't do one thing about it. And I want to get that across to the unsaved in this gathering tonight. You need the grace of God because you're helpless and because you're powerless. And that's the message as we think about this offering, Christ coming as the grace of God to helpless, hopeless sinners to deliver them and to save them from their sins because they cannot save themselves. And you know, that's the most difficult matter for a sinner to accept, that there's nothing he or she can do. Man is proud. Man clings to his works. Man believes that he can do a little at least, do something to save himself. And yet, he cannot do one, even the smallest thing, to contribute even to his own salvation. Salvation is for the helpless. Until you feel how helpless you are, you are not ready for God's salvation. The grace of God will mean nothing to you. But may the Spirit of God come tonight and show you how lost you are, how helpless you are, how hopeless you are, how powerless you are. May God by His Spirit show you that because it is for helpless sinners that Jesus came to die and by His grace save them from their sins. And you know something more, since the grace of God brings salvation, since Christ, who is the grace of God, brings salvation, that not only shows how helpless sinners are, but it actually shows as well that they do not seek it for themselves. Do you understand, my friend, that if the Lord left you to yourself, you would never be saved? If the Lord abandoned you to your own thoughts and your own efforts and your own ways, you would most truly perish. You most certainly would be damned. Because left to yourself, you will never seek the Lord. And therefore, how wondrous that God in His grace goes after sinners, that He pleads with them, through the preaching of the Word, by the work of the Spirit, by the troubles and the cares and the anxieties that come over the soul as the matter of sin arises and the, the whole issue of being apart from God and estranged from God becomes real, becomes vividly and etched on the mind. And then the sinner begins to realize that God's dealing with me. And if God did not deal with me, then I would never seek the Lord left to myself. So the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us these matters. You know, it teaches something more. It teaches that salvation is not earned and it's not deserved. It's a gift. God by His Spirit shows you tonight that Jesus Christ, the grace of God, came into the world to make himself an offering for sin and to give unto you the gift of everlasting life. There is the grace of the offering. Before he ever got to the cross, before he ever died, we must see the foundation. We must see the background to all that. We must see what moved them. We must see what was in the heart of a holy God, this marvelous grace toward men, the marvelous grace of a loving God that He would give His Son and send His Son and the Son would take the sinner's place and the Son would do what's essential for people to be saved. We must see that because that is the very foundation of God's saving work in people's hearts. There's the grace of the offering. There's also the essence of it. And if you look with me at our text, verse 14 here, you will see how the verse reads. It says, He gave Himself for us. 
Then it says in that verse, or it says in that verse, therefore, that that offering is substitutionary. He gave Himself for us. And the word that is used there, translated for, is a word that is used over and over again in the New Testament. It's a simple little word, but what a deep word it is. What a powerful word it is. In three occasions, it's translated in three very interesting ways. Number one, John 13, 37, it's translated, for thy sake. Second Corinthians 1, verse 11, on our behalf. Second Corinthians 5, verse 20, in Christ's stead. What is it telling you? It's telling you that Jesus Christ died, offered Himself for your sake, on your behalf, and in your stead. That's the sense of the word. And even more than that, it's a word that signifies all the benefits that flow out of that offering. And so here is Christ. He's not dying for himself because he has no sin. He's not dying for angels because angels are passed by. He did not take their nature. Rather, he took the nature of man because he has come to save men. He has come to rescue sinners like you and me. And he came, and the essence of the offering is that it is a substitutionary offering. It was for our sakes and our behalf in our stead. Do you understand that, sinner? Here is the very heart of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is substitutionary. It is on behalf of men. But then you see it's also sacrificial. He gave Himself for us. And you notice the sacrificial nature of what He did. The one sacrifice for sin is clearly in view in that language. You see, there can be no forgiveness, there can be no pardon, there will be none of that unless there's a sacrifice that is offered by a substitute, and indeed a sinless substitute, that satisfies the wrath of God, that meets all the demands of the law of God, that brings a closure to the matter of the wrath of God against you. And the only sacrifice that does that is the sacrifice of God's blessed Son. And notice here how specific that offering is. It says, who gave Himself for us. And when you think about it again, there's a people in view here, and they're also referred to a little farther on in this verse as a peculiar people. And the word peculiar simply signifies one's own possession. And therefore the thought is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given Himself as a substitute, has given Himself as a sacrifice, and the great goal of all that is to have a people for His own possession. Now, sinner, think about that. And ask yourself the question tonight, to whom do you really belong? In whose possession are you found? Who has ownership over you? Who runs your life? Who controls you? Who directs you? Whose will are you doing? You must ask yourself that question. Because until you see that you're not the Lord's, that you're not His possession, that you're not in view in these words, while you remain apart from Christ, until you see all that, you will never value the Savior, this Savior who made this offering, this offering of, of all the grace that it entails, this offering that is a substitutionary sacrifice specifically to bring men and women and young people into the family of God and have them become the sons of God, the people of God, to live with Him throughout the endless ages. Until you see all that, my dear friend, you do not really understand the gospel. The gospel is not the message that Jesus Christ, just, Jesus Christ died just to make it possible for people to be saved. 
or to make them salvageable. And that's all he did, people will tell you, preachers will tell you. And then the rest's up to you. My friend, that is not the gospel. The gospel, as we see it set before us in these words tonight, is the message of that one offering, an offering of grace that is essentially a sacrifice on behalf of men for the specific purpose of having those people become His people. Now the question, therefore, I put to you again is, to whom do you belong? Are you the Lord's? Has He come to reign in your heart? Do you love Him? Is it His will that you want for your life? Is He your prophet, your priest, and your king? Is He your prophet in the sense that you, you love to hear Him speak to you? And you love to get His Word into your soul to guide you and to instruct you about things that are eternal and spiritual, about those matters that you need to understand. Is He your prophet? Or do you ignore His Word? Do you disregard the Word? Have you no time for the things of God? If that is true, my friend, He's not your prophet. Is He your priest? Do you go to the Savior and thank Him that He stands between you and God? Do you look away to Him as the one who has interposed Himself that He might cover you with His blood and save you from eternal wrath and bring you into a right standing with the God of heaven and that He prays for those who are His, this peculiar people, this people of His possession. Is He all that to you? If not, He is not your priest. Is he your king? I touched on that. Whose will governs you? Whose will do you delight to do? Is it your own will? Or is it Christ? Because you see, men and women, young people tonight, all that I'm saying here about Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king flows out of who he is and what he has done for poor sinners. And unless these things are true of you, that he is your prophet, he is your priest, he is your king, unless that is true, then the offering that Christ has made on behalf of the ungodly, means nothing to you. I mean, means nothing to you in the sense that, it, that you're not saved, that you're not in Christ. He's just a name. He's someone whom people talk about. But He's not your Savior. You're estranged from Him. You know I'm not. You're lost. You're on the wrong road. You're traveling to eternity without hope. Because if you look at this point of the Lord's offering, we see where it leads. He has made the offering. We have seen that it is filled with grace. It is on behalf of men, but it brings sinners to this place where they become the Lord's own peculiar people. Not odd, but the people of His possession. And you need to search your heart tonight and ask yourself again, I say, do you belong to Christ? Or do you belong to the world? Are you still under the thraldom of Satan? Are you still on the wrong road? Ask yourself those questions for the good of your soul, for 
His eternal well-being. Better to ask those questions and be honest and come face to face with who you are and where you are than go on in life and eventually end up in a lost eternity far from God forever. But there's also here the objective. Because you'll notice that the objective is clearly spelled out after the reference to the offering, who gave Himself for us, there's the offering, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Those terms come together to reveal the truth that the Lord offered Himself with a clear and a positive objective in mind. I've been touching on this to some degree already, but look at it now in more more detail. Namely, to deliver sinners from every aspect of sin and the terrible effects of the fall upon humanity. He gave Himself that He might redeem us from all iniquity. What do you have there? What's the Lord's objective in dying and giving Himself in that offering? He died to save sinners from the curse that sin brings. It says, to redeem us from all iniquity, and the word iniquity means lawlessness. To redeem us from lawlessness. And the fall has brought man into a lawless condition. Inwardly, you have a lawless nature. And outwardly, you practice lawlessness against God. You're in disobedience to God's law. Therefore, as it is with every human being, you are lawless. And my friend, if that offends you, I make no apology for it. You've got to see it. You need to see that. Your heart is lawless. You do not want to surrender. You've come through your life, whatever age you are to this moment, and you've lived in disobedience to God. And that has been reflected in disobedience to others set over you, maybe your parents or whoever it might be. There's a lawlessness in your soul. You want your own way. You're not prepared to surrender to God. Let me tell you something. If that lawless heart is not conquered in you and it continues to drive you and dominate you and cause you to go on on the road that you're already traveling, it will lead you down to the pit. Because what's in view here is really the curse that sin brings. He died to redeem us from all iniquity. You see, that lawlessness brings guilt. And guilt is liability to divine and eternal punishment. But from that punishment, you need to be redeemed. And that's what this verse is saying. It uses the word redeem. To redeem us from all iniquity. It means to buy back, as you well know, many of you, to purchase. To bring you out of your slavery and your bondage and set you free from the threat of the law, that curse that hangs over your soul that will fall one day with an awful force and sweep you away into everlasting ruin. But you see, Christ has taken that curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And you see, there's the the price in the, the whole idea of redemption. It means to set free this word by the payment of a price. And the price that Christ paid was Christ Himself taking the curse. It fell upon Him. It descended with the awful wrath of His Father over Christ's soul. And all for the purpose of delivering you from that curse. That was the Lord's objective, to save from the curse that sin brings, but also to save from the corruption that sin brings. For it says that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people. To purify unto Himself, the word purify, it's, it's clear, isn't it? To wash 
to cleanse. You see, you're corrupt. There's inward corruption. There's moral corruption. There's spiritual corruption. You're corrupt through and through. You know, the, the island of Crete was notorious for its corrupt behavior and its corrupt mindset and for its filthy lifestyle. Just look to chapter 1 and verse number 12 and you will see this. It says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And then farther down in that chapter, in chapter 1, look at verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every work reprobate. There is the description of the people of Crete. But my friend, that's a description of all humanity. And the point is, you belong in that framework. You may not like that again, I say. To be told that you're defiled, that you're corrupt, that there's a vileness about your nature, that there is a rottenness and a filthiness about your whole being. If that offends you, I tell you tonight, may God stamp it on your heart until you actually feel it. How vile you actually are before God. Because you need to be saved from the corruption that sin brings. The corruption that defiles, that wrecks and ruins people's lives, that takes them down, down, down into the gutter and leaves them morally bankrupt and leaves them stripped of all decency. And they're defiled before God. And they're fit only for damnation. But Jesus Christ's objective was not only to save from the curse that sin brings, but to save from the corruption that sin brings. Look at chapter 3 and just notice what he goes on to say there about that whole situation of corruption and violence. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. He includes himself in this, but he's addressing those who are on the island of Crete, really. We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Look at all those sins. They fill men's hearts. They fill people's lives. They're all over the face of humanity. What's to be done? What can rescue them? Look at the next words in verse 4. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. There's the name again. God our Savior. That's Christ. Then verse 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Men and women, that's what saves from the corruption of sin. It is the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. As He applies the cleansing blood to the soul, because it's not water that removes the filth of sin. Regeneration is the Spirit of God applying the meritorious value and power of the Savior's blood to the conscience, to the heart, to the soul. And therefore, let your cry go up tonight. Lord, you came with the objective of saving sinners from the curse of sin and the corruption of sin. Lord, save me because I'm under the curse and my life is corrupt and my ways are evil. My heart is bent toward 
all that sin does in terms of, of its defilement. But Lord, wash me, purge me, cleanse me. You need to make that your prayer. If you're ever going to be in heaven and be with the Lord's people there, you need to come before God tonight and take the truth that's here and use that as your very basis of approach as you pray, as you cry to God, because you need to seek the Lord and you need to ask Him for what He promises to give and you need to come with the right attitude and with truth guiding you, bringing you into a right standing with God. Oh, Lord, you died to deal with the curse and you died to remove corruption. Now, Lord, save me and make me a new creature. Back there in our text it says, a people who are zealous of good works. And that's the same idea. The word zealous is a strong word. It signifies an eager desire, an urge in a person's heart and soul and life to live for God, to do His will, to please Him. My dear friend, this is what you need. You need the Lord to save you from the curse, from the corruption, from the criminality of your sin, because sin is a heinous crime in the sight of God. And yet the Lord can save you and give you that zeal for His glory, and that's true living. That's really living. That's living for God. That's living a holy life. That's living in obedience to the mind and the will of God, zealous of good works. What are you zealous for? Are you zealous for the world? Are you zealous for the corruption of the world? Oh, young man, tonight, is your heart going in the direction of the pub and the club and the dance hall and the immorality of this old fallen world? Is that where your heart leans? Let me tell you, those are most certainly not good works. That lifestyle is stained and stamped with the rottenness and the filth of your own heart in an ungodly world. And therefore you're on the road to ruin and you need to be rescued. But Christ came. Christ came to save from the curse and the corruption of sin. The outcome is my final thought. Look at verse 13, which really introduces verse 14. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior who gave Himself for us, etc. What you find here is that the outcome of the Lord as the Savior, His work in saving people, what's the outcome? It is to have them with him when the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior takes place. That's the outcome. The offering the Lord has made. The objective is that by it you will be saved from the curse and the corruption of your sin and then be able to anticipate this glorious outcome or result. That is, sharing with Christ in the blessed hope of His own glorious appearing. Those are lovely words, aren't they? The blessed hope and the glorious appearing. They're not two different events. There's just the one event brought together. It's the Lord's coming. It's called the blessed hope because that is the hope of the true Christian. And it's called the glorious appearing. Because as He came the first time in shameful surroundings, in humiliation, as we were hearing this morning, He'll come the next time in the glory, in the glory of the Father, the glorious appearing. 
And what an outcome that is for those who trust Him. Going to be with Him. Sharing in that glory. Throughout the endless ages, seeing Christ rejoicing before Him, praising Him throughout eternity as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. What outcome is awaiting you? Where are you headed? What's going to happen if you die as you're now living? Is it not time, my friend, to turn, to reverse the course of life, to get right with God? Perhaps you're on the very verge of of the next step that will take you over the edge and your heart become more hardened and your soul become more callous and the ways of sin more delightful to you. And you keep on going then until you're lost. You see, there is a line that is crossed by rejecting our Lord. For the call of the Spirit is lost. And therefore you need to be in time. You need to turn. You need to seek the Lord. And the time is now. It's the only time of which you can be sure. This night, in this meeting, having looked at God our Savior, Jesus Christ, His offering, His objective, the outcome of it all, will you not turn from your evil ways and come to the Savior? Let us bow in prayer. Let's just take these moments now, the closing part of the meeting, and could we all be still and silent, reverent before the Lord as we come. Just have a word of prayer in a moment or two. My friend, it is time for you to heed and to obey the gospel call. With my joy, Mr. Church, joy to meet with you afterwards, help you from the Scriptures and counsel you from the Word of God and talk with you about these matters, if that would be your intention, your desire tonight. Do not leave. Just do not go away another time. Has the Lord not brought you here tonight to challenge you, to deal with you, to arrest your soul? May you obey His voice, and may you come to His own dear Son. Seek out help. And, O God and Father, we pray that Thy Spirit will move, that Thy work will be done, that there will be a calling of sinners to Christ to rest in the atonement, and that one offering that He has made. May the Lord's objective be fulfilled tonight. Lord, save sinners from the curse and the corruption of their sin and give them the glorious anticipation of that wonderful outcome of appearing with Christ in the glory that shall be hereafter. It's Thy work, Lord. Do it, we pray, for Thy name's sake. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit be with all who are thine, both this night and forevermore. Amen.